Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm going to introduce to you the other panellists, first of all. They're going to tell you a little bit about their latest titles, and then we'll get down to the topic in question. At the end of the row, Nikki French is the pseudonym for the writing partnership of journalists Nikki Gerrard and Sean French. The couple are married and live in Suffolk, in East Anglia. Although both studied English literature at Oxford, they did not meet there but at the New Statesman, where Nikki was editor and Sean wrote a weekly column. Nikki moved on from there to join the Observer, where she still works covering high-profile trials. Their first title together in 1997 was The Memory Game, and to date they've published 14 best-selling novels. Their latest series, set in London, features psychotherapist Frida Klein. Friday on My Mind is the fifth in that series. Their novels have been commended as sophisticated, compassionate and gripping, brilliantly crafted with a masterly control of suspense, and dark, nerve-tingling and addictive. So, Nicky and Sean, please tell us a little bit about Friday on my mind. Uh, well, the, uh, I mean, one of the characteristics about Frida as a character is she's a therapist who, in a way, she, she, right from the beginning, she, really, she, she doesn't want to be a crime, she doesn't want to solve crimes, she doesn't want to be a detective, and she really believes in, if she could, she'd like to solve problems just from the safety of her consulting room. And so, you know, in, in, Friday, in Friday on My Mind, we decided to really give her a hard time. And uh, so we strip everything away from her. She's actually, she stops being even an investigator, and she really becomes the subject of an investigation. And she loses all the, she, uh, she loses the whole safety of her, even, she even loses her, her home. She, she basically has to, to leave her home and go on the run and go into, the, uh, into a kind of London that most of us never see. Uh, so that's the starting Thank point. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Jonathan Friedland is an award-winning journalist, author and broadcaster. He's the Guardian's executive editor for Opinion, where he writes a weekly column. Before that, he was their Washington correspondent. Jonathan presents BBC Radio 4's contemporary history series, The Long View. He is a regular contributor to a range of US publications. In 2014, he won the Orwell Special Prize for Journalism. Jonathan studied philosophy, politics and economics at Wadham College, Oxford. He lives in London with his wife and their two children. Jonathan has published five best-selling novels under the pseudonym Sam Bourne. The Third Woman is Jonathan's first work of fiction to be published under his own name. His books have been praised as a disturbing delight, an intelligent thriller with a vividly drawn wartime atmosphere and immensely diverting, a pacey read constructed with a crisp control of tension and narrative drive. Jonathan, describe for us the third woman. So the third woman is the story of a journalist, uh, a woman journalist, much younger than me in America, who's used to investigating and getting to the bottom, does a lot of undercover reporting. Uh, when she finds herself investigating something she never would have wanted to investigate, and that is the death of her own sister. Uh, her, her younger sister is found dead. There's an official version of what's happened. The police say it's a drug overdose uh, and that it must have been self-inflicted. Uh, she, Madison Webb, refuses to accept that official account. She's always used to challenging authority, and she does here. And she begins an investigation uh, through Los Angeles as she believes, follows her hunch that uh, her sister is not the first... Uh, victim of a crime, but rather the, probably the third, uh, and there's a serial killer at work. The sort of twist, if you like, is that this isn't a usual Los Angeles, and it isn't a, uh, the America we all know. It's an America, I've imagined, in which America has lost its place as the number one superpower in the world to China. And now China is the dominant force in the world, and therefore that affects everything in Los Angeles, the food people eat, the slang they use, the clothes they wear. It's just America, but sort of with a twist, uh, and that's the world she navigates, and in the end, her own search for her sister will somehow lead her into that world. Thank you. Coming next to Wiley Cash. Wiley holds a BA in literature, an MA and a PhD in English, 
and he teaches an MFA in fiction and nonfiction at Southern New Hampshire University. A native of North Carolina, he lives there in Wilmington with his wife and their young daughter. A land more kind than home won the CWA John Creasy New Blood Dagger in 2012, and this dark road to mercy won the CWA Gold Dagger in 2014. The critics have said, this dark road to mercy is a terrific, moving and propulsive novel. Harper Lee by way of Elmore Leonard. <laughs> great that isn't it a land more kind than home is a thriller but it's so beautifully written that you'll be torn about how fast to read it and Wiley Cash presents brilliant portraits of desperate people caught up in an underworld where danger damage drugs and fractured families are all clasped in the tight fist of poverty so Wiley tell us about this dark road to mercy um, my novel, This Dark Road to Mercy, is about an absent father who is missing from the lives of his two young daughters. They're 12 and 6 years old. And after their mother dies of a drug overdose, they're sent to, into the foster care system in North Carolina, which is where I live. And one night, their wayward father, whom they haven't seen in years, shows up, tells them they are not safe, and convinces them to leave with him and, and kind of go on this road trip. And so he basically kidnaps his own daughters, breaking the law. And unbeknownst to the two girls, uh, people are looking for him. The father has come into some money he should not have, a couple of hundred thousand dollars from a bank heist that's gone horribly wrong. And so looking for him are the FBI, uh, the local police who are chasing out on the trail of these two young girls, and also a bounty hunter, this kind of sick, twisted bounty hunter who uh, has a vendetta against the father whose name is Wade for, for some long overdue sins that Wade has not yet accounted for. So the novel's hilarious. It's all <laughs> really lighthearted and uh, fun read. Thank you. And Belinda Bauer grew up in England and South Africa and now lives in Wales. She studied journalism at Cardiff University and has worked as a journalist and script screenwriter. Her script, The Locker Room, earned her the Carl Foreman BAFTA Award for Young British Screenwriters, an award that was presented to her by Sidney Poitier. Blacklands, her debut, won the CWA Gold Dagger for Crime Novel of the Year, and Belinda won the CWA Dagger in the Library in 2013, while Rubbernecker, was shortlisted for the CWA Gold Dagger and was voted the 2014 Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year. The Shut Eye is Belinda's latest title. Her fiction has been lauded as almost indecently gripping and enjoyable, inventive and surprising, Bauer's ability to get under the skins of her characters is second to none, and extraordinarily powerful and provocative. Belinda, please tell us about Shutai. Um, the Shutai is a, quite a simple little story, really. It starts with a, we meet a lady called Anna Buck, whose four-year-old son Daniel has gone missing some months earlier, and the only sign that he was ever even alive are five little footprints in the cement outside their home. Um, she's kind of spiralling into a state of madness while the police seem completely unable to return her son to her, and she finally is driven to seek the help of a psychic at a local little church. And, um, and the story then unfolds from there, and we're not quite, never quite sure whether the psychic is there to help her or is you know, a far more sinister figure in the whole affair. Mm. Yes. So we're here to discuss the morality of murder. Can I, can I just interrupt? She has we have an agreement. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. Come on. I was threatened with this earlier. Okay. Um, I'm Kath Staincliffe, and my latest novel is called Half the World Away. It's about a couple whose graduate daughter goes traveling and reaches China and then goes missing there. And she's officially reported as a missing person, and her parents fly out to Chengdu in China to join in the search for her. Obviously, it's a very difficult undertaking because of cultural differences and the language barrier, and as the days go on and they fall out of favor with the local authorities, it becomes harder and harder to know whether they're going to reach her or find her at all. Okay, thank you. 
As I was saying, <laughs> we're here to discuss the morality of murder and whether the crime novel is essentially an updated morality tale. Now, a morality tale is a struggle between good and evil which offers a moral lesson. The morality plays of the 14 and 1500s featured a protagonist who was met by personifications of various moral attributes who tried to prompt him to choose a godly life over an evil one. Other morality tales might include Aesop's fables and 19th century children's stories like Shock-Headed Peter, which gave salutary lessons as to what might befall any child who broke the rules. Now, I'm going to ask Wiley this first question. A Land More Kind Than Home was reviewed as a beautifully written morality tale. Were you aware when you started out that it was a morality tale you were writing? I don't know when I started out that I was aware of it being anything, necessarily. I started out trying to write it as a short story, and I knew there was loss at the, at the core of this. That, you know, a family... My first novel, Land More Kind Than Home, is set in the mountains of North Carolina, and it's about the fallout in the community after this young boy smothered during a healing service at a little church. And I knew that loss was going to anchor the community. But I didn't know the implications of good and evil in the novel until I kind of found myself in the middle of it. And, and I, I think I definitely drew some direction from trying to balance between those, those two forces. But I think that the characters in this book, like all of us, they're more complicated than these larger personas of one thing or the other. And I also want to say this is the first panel I've ever been on where medieval literature has been referenced. So thank you for bringing up the intellectual equivalent of the stage. I, normally in the States, they're like, how do you tell stories? You write your own books. You know, they don't, is that your real name? You're not, you're, not, you're not talking about, you know, every man like you just did. So thank you for that. It gets harder. It does. This is already really hard. Okay. And um, Jonathan, going back to medieval morality plays, um, they were the result of the dominant belief of the time period that humans had a certain amount of control over their post-death fate while they were on Earth. Now, in today's very, very different world, do you think we still share a dominant belief system? Well, that, that, so many interesting things in that. I mean, the idea of post-death, you know, what happens to you afterwards, I don't think any contemporary crime or thriller novels really get into that now. They, you'd more or less be working on the assumption that, the sort of atheist set of assumptions, that actually people are just, what matters is what happens now, yes. rather than there being any reckoning afterwards. And that's what often makes the search for justice so important. Because centuries ago, probably people have, could have coped with the idea that the killer gets away with it because they'll get their just desserts mm -hmm. afterwards. But readers now want to know that the justice will be done before you get to the last page of the book. Uh, it has to be done here. So I think that's a, a big difference. But one of the things, I hadn't realized this until you asked the question, but I think one, that's one of the things that was you know, I found interesting about the story I was imagining, was what if there was a big clash of belief systems right in one place, so that here's Madison Webb, a journalist, she's got a very private, personal reason that's motivating her. She wants to know who killed her sister. It's completely intimate for her. But what she's up against is not just the big you know, authorities of the city of Los Angeles, and there's an election story going on in, in this novel, an election for, to be governor of California. But also there's this whole other rival belief system. You know, the Chinese have arrived. They're actually there. There's a big Chinese naval base looming over Los Angeles. And so there's this big clash between uh, you know, what she would imagine and what the country sort of tells itself or its, its values, and actually the values that really matter, the people who are properly in charge. Mm. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I, sorry, just very briefly, because I think it's, it's such an interesting subject, and I was trying to think about exactly that thing about after, you know, the, that morality in the future world. And I, I can only actually think of one, one writer where that's true of, in a way. I mean, I'm, maybe people could suggest other ones, but it's the, it's the Father Brown story, it's the Chesterton. Because that really is the idea of a Catholic priest who's a detective. Yes. And, and there's this double, very interesting thing in the stories, which I, I think they're great stories and brilliant. I mean, they're brilliant technical detective stories. But of course, the, one of the interesting tensions in the story is that he, what he's really concerned with is the soul, of the, the immortal soul of the of the murderer. And so often, there's this, there's this, there's not, it's not about someone being arrested. He's concerned that they should, they should repent. And, that, yes. and that's really very different. There are very few other stories where you could say where that, where that kind of, you know, kind of almost that really religious vision is part of it. I think, you know, mm. um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that is a big difference in 
in modern writing, isn't it? That well, I think it's mainly the yeah. detective story is quite a secular form, I think, on yeah, the whole. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I'm going to quote now from your website, Belinda, <laughs> where you write, uh, life is a river and crime is the rocks. It's only when we hit a rock that we find out whether we're one of life's swimmers or one of life's sinkers. It's that struggle for survival and recovery that interests me. The rock itself is almost incidental, so I write crime, but really, I just write people. Now, in a traditional morality tale, the people, the characters, are black and white, good and evil. There isn't really middle ground. Would you say that's the case in your fiction? I think my books are completely um, comprised of middle ground. I think every single character in my book has their own morality. And I think that makes it easier for me to write the characters because when I'm writing a character who's what we might term evil, a killer or, or a child molester or somebody like that, I, mean, I feel it's my duty as a writer to actually put myself in their position, however distasteful that may seem to be. And almost always the key to writing that character properly is that you realize that people have different moral values and nobody ever goes through their life believing that everything they're doing is wrong. Yes, that's a very good point. You know, people yes. believe that they're doing the right thing even if they think it's only right for them. You know, if the, even if they're aware that it's selfish, if they truly believed it was wrong, they wouldn't do it. And so people's moral values are fluid and as individual as seven billion of us. Excellent, thank you. I was just going to say, I agree with that, that point about the, um, everyone believing it's good. And one thing I've tried to do in, in the Sam Bourne novels, and I think it happens again in this one, is you know, the, when, when the reveal comes and you realise who's behind it, they often believe they can really make a strong case for what they've done. Not, and it, it, not just, I mean, sometimes it will be for their own needs, the selfish need, but sometimes they will believe there was a moral thing going on there. That's why they did it. The very first Sam Bourne book I did, The Righteous Men, was really about goodness and the idea of what would, you know, why, because I think what people are so often fascinated by evil, but actually goodness is quite interesting too, and especially even people who do terrible things think they're doing it for some greater good, some higher calling. Sometimes there's been some, you know, political stories that I've done. They always think it's ultimately for the benefit of yeah. humankind or whatever, and that's what makes it interesting. So it's a clash of good and good rather than good and evil. Or they do things that are bad, but they think that's not really them. They can, their action doesn't express their self. Mm. So they kind of, things happen to them. They happen sure. to do it. That kind of sense of not feeling that they're kind of, you know, the inner self and the outer active self. And there's this great disconnect between it. That's quite close to something I'm going to ask you, which is um, Aldous Huxley said... Moral principles are like measles. <laughs> they have to be caught. So what if a person doesn't catch them? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I love all these references you're doing. <laughs> so, so, so say this again. So, what so if moral principles are like measles, they have to be caught. Now, what happens if a person, because of their circumstances, because of their upbringing or whatever, doesn't catch those morals, doesn't learn Morality. Well, and, and that's, you know, yes, cause, because actually when you're talking about morality, what are we meaning when we're saying morality? I mean, we were talking about this in the car on the way up about how I don't think that many thriller writers today would think of themselves as writing something that was moral, that was like a manifesto, that believed in good and evil. What they're writing about is a kind of way of negotiating the world, of how, do, how are you good in a world that's so murky? So it's all about a kind of a kind of precarious sense of trying to kind of, kind of live well in a world which keeps pushing you towards doing things you don't want to do. And, and actually, one of the things that we're always trying to write about as Nikki French is that, you know, on the surface, we're living one kind of life. And we all know that underneath that surface, we're this maelstrom of different and often very kind of ugly emotions. And, and when, when we're writing as Nikki French, what we're trying to think about is... What, you know, what lies between the kind of decorous, civilised surface that we all present to each other? Mm, mm, mm. That's not really answering your question, but... It's fine. Also, I'll I take think, that. I, mean, I was trying to think, there are, I mean, there are some thrillers, I mean, which are really pleasurable, I'm sorry, of, which in a way don't deal with morality at all. I mean, I think, you know, if I two very quick examples. I, mean, I don't know if people have read the Parker novels by Donald Westlake. One of them was made, you know, made into point, the film Point Blank. It's, and and the, the central character... 
uh, of that. He's just, he is a criminal. I mean, he's just, yeah. he's a criminal who will do anything to survive. And he doesn't just kill the guilty, he kills the innocent as well. But partly there's just, there's a kind of, you know, you're on his side, you know, and it's really morally indefensible, I think. <laughs> as a, you know, as a, but, but there's a kind of excitement into going into that sort of dark place. And another quick example is, you know, one of the, you know, maybe the greatest of all thriller writers is, is Simonon. And, and his stories, it's not just the individual characters. I think he's just a very, very bleak pessimist about what human <laughs> life is like. So I think questions of, is this character good or are they bad? You really, actually, you're going into what that's not, it's like in the world of Camus or something. It doesn't even apply. I think he does, for him, human life is such a bleak thing that it's really about, about these, you know, it's really about kind of struggle, hard Coping, to survive yeah. or failure, yeah. you know, so. Yeah. I'm just going to make a small plea for this not being that complicated, maybe. Which is, you know, there's always this discussion about characters being likable. Oh, yes. And, you know, there's all that goes back and forth. Should they be likable? And why does it matter? And all of that. But I think much more important than that, you do, if you're, you know, reading a, uh, one of these stories and you're following the character, you do need to believe in their motive, I think. Yes. You have to believe that, you, however you define it, that broadly right is on their side. That's what propels you. And it means even if the character is actually quite unlikable, personally, if you believe that there's justice on their side, or at least that they're right to want justice, then I think that will propel you through. That in the end, there is quite a sort of... It isn't as simple as the old morality plays, but I think if you don't believe your hero or heroine is justified in their course of action, I think that would really be a massive barrier for a reader of a thriller, crime novel, or anything like yes, it. Yes, it's got to add up, hasn't it? I mean, somebody once said of your book, Pantheon... A propulsive, satisfying novel which burns with moral indignation. Mm. Mm. And so I wonder, is that moral indignation a feature regularly in your work? Well, I wonder about it. I mean, that, that, that one definitely did have. That was a story set in 1940, and it was actually based on something real, uh, and in the end came, about, came down to uh, something about eugenics, which was a real idea that had the British establishment completely in its grip at the time. And there was, I think, some sort of anger going on in there. And maybe there are in a few of the others. But I think, you know, it's, it's, that can only be secondary to the, the story and the characters. That's what's got to work. But, you know, you certainly can't decide... You know, there's the story about... Uh, I think it was Jack Warner, who was the head of Warner Brothers Studios, you know, and he told one of his directors, he said, I want to make a film about, you know, social issues and problems. And he said, you know, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. You know, don't make a film. <laughs> uh, you know, and, um, and he was right. And so I think you've got to have a story to tell, yeah. not um, be, you know, making... Wave, you won't wave a placard if you want to make a stage a demo, you know, write, but write a novel if it's a proper story. And in this Dark Road to Mercy, Wiley, it's beautifully written and it's very moving. And for anybody who hasn't read it, there's this really captivating young heroine at the heart of the story. Now, one theme in that book is second chances. It's a shot at redemption. So I suppose my question is, do all char our characters deserve forgiveness or are some beyond the pale? Gosh, I don't, that's, a, that's a good question. You know, I think that, I think that as human beings, regardless of where we come from or what our belief system is, we want to believe that we're capable of forgiving people. And there's the old saying, you know, we can forgive, but we can't forget. And, and this novel is about this young girl that you mentioned. Her name's Easter. She's 12 years old. She knows her dad's a total loser, but she really wishes he wasn't. And, you know, she wants to forgive him. She wants to have a father. She wants to have a, a, a fixed family. But something in, in her past or in her intuition or in her understanding of who she knows her father to be, she's hesitant to forgive him. And the, the crux of the novel, although there's all of these things going on, I think the emotional crux of the novel is whether or not she is going to forgive him and, mm -hmm. and allow him to come back into her life. Now, the, the villain in the novel, whose name is Bobby Pruitt, he's not going to forgive Wade regardless. He's, revenge is the only forgiveness for him, and revenge isn't forgiveness. Revenge is cessation of anger, I, I guess you could say. <laughs> so he is not into forgiveness at all. But I think, I think Easter really wants to forgive her father. Yeah, yeah. And Belinda, um, the Shutai features a wonderful misanthrope <laughs> who has, and I quote, never met a person he didn't hate or despise <laughs> at the very least. <laughs> just, and there are some hysterically funny scenes in the book, but they're interwoven with heart-rending human tragedies. So I'd like to know, where does that comic streak in your writing come from? 
And do you ever worry that using humour might undermine the gravity of the crimes? Well, I mean, the humour comes from just me finding humour in everyday life. Um, I never go through a day without laughing at something really hard. Um, usually the misfortune of others. <laughs> but, I can um, attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's, you know, I'm always trying to create characters and situations which feel very organic and realistic in my books. And so to me, that feels real. Um, and so some of the humour, doesn't, it doesn't come from jokes, but it comes from situations, it comes from people's responses to situations, and comes from being able to create a character like that who is, isn't misanthrope and he isn't asshole. And so I kind of make him suffer for that a little bit. Um, but just, you know, going back to the morality thing, I think that with one exception, in all my books, the, the, the moral indignation and, and, the, and the sense of judge, judgmentalism it comes from other characters. I never really want to feel that my, um, my stance is visible in right, the book. Right. Um, the only time I made an exception was in my first book in, in Blacklands, um, where it was a two-hander, really, between a 12-year-old boy and a paedophilic serial killer. And because I told it through the eyes of the serial killer as well as the boy, I really felt that it would be completely wrong of me to indicate that there was anything about his background which would allow us to forgive him for mm. what he'd done. Mm. So even though I took a view where I, I, I saw the world through his eyes, which was uncomfortable reading, um, I, I refused to allow us to forgive him mm. in a way that I might have if I'd un unraveled his childhood and his history mm. and his influences. And so we might have been able to see why he became the monster he did. I made the deliberate um, decision not, not to show that so that we couldn't forgive him. So are you saying in that book there cannot be any redemption in the book for that character, for that character. beyond redemption? Yeah, in my opinion. I mean, if you're a more forgiving person than I, then redeem him at your pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nikki and Sean, in, in the um, traditional morality tale, the everyman figure has to obey the rules and will get rewarded. You know, it's very simple. Deal. Uh, but much of modern crime fiction features mavericks, rule breakers. Mm. And in Friday on My Mind, the fiercely determined Frida Klein breaks rules left, right and centre. So my questions are, is it a prerequisite for your hero to be a rule breaker? And are we hypocrites expecting everyone to follow the rules except for our protagonists. Such a good question. Mm. Well, <laughs> Such a and good that's question. a really that's interesting... I mean, one of the points about... That it was really important when we chose... We was, it was a big decision that made, having our, our protagonist not a police, not a detective, but a therapist. Because actually, one of the things about therapy is, is you know, we're, we're, we've been, we're very interested in what, you know, what is it, what is therapy for? And one, one, one of the things that's kind of interesting about behind Freudian therapy, is, which is in a way is why it's not a, really a science, is actually there's something very, very moral about it. It's really a moral thing, because what it's saying is we need to look at our lives and, and be honest about our real feelings. We've got to, in the end, that's what therapy is about. You uncover the real drives beneath. And in a way, what Frida is about, what Frida is, she's intense, she's not, she's not a she doesn't f always follow the law. She doesn't always follow the rules. But she, does, she is intensely moral. And one of the things she does as a, as a detective, because she's forced to be a detective, is often to force people to face up to the truth. Mm. And that's, not, that's often causes terrible harm or terrible... It can be a really painful thing to be made, to be honest, or to, to, to face up to the truth. But, that, but, but that's what she does. So in a way, being what we try and show in the stories is actually being moral is not... Solving a, necessarily solving a crime, and it's not necessarily helping pe people in the way they might want to be helped, or, or making pe certainly not making people happier. But there's, you know, but there's a kind of feeling that it's, that's what we need to do. We need to be authentic. We need to kind mm. of face up but to the it, truth. But of course, it's a great question, because actually, almost every detective novel I can think of, it features kind of mavericks, rule breakers, people who believe themselves rather than other people. And that's good for a drama, but in society that would be just awful, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, it would be, and that, that's what makes the lynch mob or, you know, that, that's what kind of creates so many problems. So, it's that, so what we're doing endlessly in our dramas is doing what we don't want people to do. <laughs> yes. in real, you know, do not, do not choose Frida to be your therapist. <laughs> <laughs> And in, in, Jonathan, in The Third Woman, which is 
a completely gripping thriller, and it's got this great insight into investigative journalism and political life, and a finely imagined setting of a near-future United States enthralled to China, but it's also a tale of a personal quest. However, Madison's search for truth and justice causes harm to others. Hmm. So is she wrong to pursue it? I never once contemplated that question. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I mean, because uh, to me, the, the, I, she certainly breaks rules, and I thought that's okay, and the reader will think that's okay, because what she's really after is the truth. And I think it's interesting what you were saying about Frida also just wanting the truth as if that's the highest ideal and everything else can be subordinated to that. Um, I was so convinced sort of emotionally that her need to find out the truth about her sister was, could trump the other rules she breaks, that that would be okay. But it does bring harm to others, it's quite true, except she's not the author, really, of that harm. There's, uh, there's, you know, the, there are other people doing wrong uh, out there, trying to not give away too much. But, um, but it's true, you know, the, some eggs will get broken while she pursues that truth. Um, and I, I think, like I said, I think, you know, I can forgive that in her because I'm convinced of uh, the, all the sort of little white lies she's telling, say, are in pursuit of that higher truth. But, uh, yeah, in real life, it would be very challenging to, you know, I, because now I have to run a de you know, department of journalists at The Guardian. The idea of Madison Webb turning up as one of my reporters, you know, <laughs> would be very challenging indeed. Um, and, uh, you, know, we, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want her in the newsroom. But in this particular case, she is so dogged and determined to get to the truth. And I think that's why a journalist, and I know a lot of people think it's, you know, journalist and truth are barely on nodding terms, but the, um, <laughs> the, the, you know, the good ones, they are absolutely, that's all they care about, is getting to the bottom of something and finding mm. out the truth. And that's why I think she's ideal for, you know, it's quite an interesting thing. It's a discussion I've been having with others recently, can, you know, crime thrillers or thrillers that aren't about detectives. And who are the people who are in position? There's the psychotherapist, there's journalists, there's other people whose life is about pursuing the truth and getting to the bottom of things. Uh, and, you know, I think you forgive them an awful lot if you're convinced that's what they're really about and they're not out for themselves. And also it informs the characters all the way through that kind of story. You know, all your, your rule breaker is, is prepared to break this rule but not that one. You know, and as yes. a writer you have to decide how far am I going to let this person push the boundaries of the law or of moral etiquette or, you know what I mean? And so that starts to build your character so nicely is that the, the, the reader starts to understand where that character's limits are and then at some point you can be, you can, once you establish the parameters, you can push against those moral limits mm -hmm. to, you know, increase tension or to show somebody in a, in a poorer light than, than they had previously been seen or something like that. So, it's, uh, you know, once you create that moral world around your character, whatever concentric circle it is, you know, poking and prodding at those walls is what becomes interesting within the context there's of the story. Also, yeah, and the, but there's also the issue, and which all sounds, which Wiley's exploring in his story, but and which we've also done is, what about the maverick who's not right? You know, you can, I mean, there's a, you know, you can, there's a, often, the, I mean, I think you're quite right, and there's a kind of, there's something a bit troubling about, it's always, the kind, in, you know, in so many Hollywood movies, it's, the, it's the, 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 the cop who doesn't obey the rules, the one who just kicks doors down and doesn't read people their rights, and women, which is fine, when you're always right, but what about when you get the wrong person? And that's, you know, so that's, it's always, you know, when you need to sort of be aware of that, that there's a cost to, you know, to not following the rules. Mm, mm. And sometimes, sometimes there, in, in my novel, The Stark Road to Mercy, one of the people pursuing the girls is their court-appointed guardian. And at the end of the novel, he has to decide, is the right thing to do the morally right thing, or is the right thing to do the legally right thing? Right. And the thing that he chooses, a lot of people, um, four or five people read the novel, and all of them have contacted me and uh, said, why did he make that decision? And I said, I don't, I don't know. You know. <laughs> he, that's the decision he wanted that's, to make. Yeah, but the reason yeah. why I think this is a good just conversation to be having, this is what I meant before about likability. You realize that actually when you, at first you think that's just about people who are sort of personal traits and whether they're obnoxious or not. You realize it's, like, it's all these moral calculations that go into whether or not you, you know, people say, do you like that character or not like them? I think it's often about the things Belinda was talking about, about pushing them, their moral limits. In the end, the way that you would alienate readers from a writer, uh, from a character, I think, is if they made a moral choice that really they just couldn't stomach, and that they felt they, for one thing, they wouldn't make that as a choice. They can't understand why the character made that choice. I think that's when you would sort of cut off relationship between readers and a character, even if you allowed them to have, you know, appalling personal hygiene and a, you know, desperate, horribly rude to and discourteous to people around them. As long as they're, mor the, I think, the morality is central to it. 
even if you know you saw the beginning of the conversation, we're sort of a bit wary of the topic. Actually, that is goes to the heart of of, of who the characters are. I think. Um, one of the notes on the sort of heading for the panel today was was about the crime novel. Um, helping us to contemplate some of the most important questions of our time. So I'm going to ask you first, Wally, and then Belinda. Um, do you agree that it does that? And have you chosen any specific issues to address in your novels? I think what a crime novel does, uh, especially in the way that I view what I try to do, writing about the American South, is especially Americans, we think of ourselves as the land of opportunity and the land of equality and the land of the self-made man or woman. And, and it is when you're rich, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's easy. Uh, a couple of days ago in an interview, Hillary Clinton said, somebody asked her about the specter of Clinton versus Bush 20 years after Clinton versus Bush. And she, they asked her what she thought about that. She said, well, the great thing is that America, anybody can run for president. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a millionaire or if yeah. you know millionaires, you know. Yeah. And so what I think crime does is it shows that we're not all born, we're, we all are born into an equal land, but we're not all born into an equal set of circumstances. Mm. And when I write about issues of race and class, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about these un, this disproportionate circumstances that children are born into. Thank you. What about you, Belinda? Yeah, I don't think you can escape issues. I think issues are all around us, and I don't think it, you know, I honestly don't believe any of us could say that we didn't write about issues, um, even if it was accidental. Yeah. You know, I mean, especially in the context of crime, you're often writing about the abuse of children, domestic violence, um, you know, just house burglary, you know. These are all issues that we all live with every day, and that's why crime is such an interesting genre, because... Um, all of us experience the world that we write about in our books, possibly the exception of your, of your slightly futuristic set novel, Jonathan. But um, I, think that's why, I think that's why it's so engaging. People relate to it immediately. Everybody's had a bag snatched or lost something at the airport and, or had their bicycle stolen or something. <laughs> Sorry, I lost everything at the airport. <laughs> Um, and so this is why so people can immediately engage with that subject and that person. They say, yes, I know what that was like. It was awful. Even if it's not murder. Yes. You know, it's yeah. these small things, these small lawless moments in our lives that give us that empathy when we take it up a notch and say it was an assault, it was a robbery, it was a rape, it was a murder. We've all been experienced feeling like victims. Right. Oh, God, so right. Can I just, I mean, just to, you know, get, this kind of goes back to the questions you were asking earlier about morality. There's a way in which, you know, now, you know, we live in a world that has very little faith in a God, you know, a priest, a conf you know, a do we've lost faith in, in politics, in authority, really. And so we turn back to kind of try and find kind of faith in ourselves. And we have to say so we have to look inwards. And I think that... A lot, a lot of thrillers are now doing is it's trying to kind of it's, it's trying to work out not just what it's like to have a bag stolen or be scared, but it's almost, it's just like what it's like to feel despair, utter loneliness, huge jealousy, kind of wrenching grief, and things that we all go through, things that make our life unravel, and it's so you know the thriller is a wonderful form to going really deep into those kind of dark lands, which we used to feel were more kind of bounded by things like religion and that kind of external authority. I think Nick is putting the focus in the right place, actually, because you've been asking us about, as writers, are we addressing these issues? I think the interesting thing is, as readers, readers. Uh, why are readers coming to crime and thriller novels? And, you know, it'd be very interesting to hear from all of you what you think on that, but, my, you know, must, surely part of it must be there is all this death and killing and violence and all the things going on in the world, and this is a way to process and manage and approach those things. And, you know, the... You mentioned how child abuse looms so large in so much crime fiction. Well, it looms larger in the culture now. People were more aware of it. We talk about it more. And so, you know, you, you, you open the newspaper and it's horrific things. Jimmy Savile, Rolf Harris, whatever. You come to a crime novel. I, one, you know, I wonder, this is a question. Do you come to a crime novel partly to help you sort of navigate through that and to have a way of approaching it? And, you know, and that goes for all kinds of questions. So, yes, in my one, I'm thinking about just what's happening in the world and, you know, whether uh, the... the power of balance of forces is about to change, but also in the middle of it, one individual losing somebody they love, you know. Yeah, we all need to use this. you give a shape to mess, so there's this kind yeah. of brutal mess, and then a novel can give shape to that. And yeah. 
And I wonder, I mean, I think um, life, as we've been discussing, can be messy and justice often imperfect. And so I wonder whether, the, whether our books reflect that or whether they're a place where the struggle for truth is more idealized. I, you know, I think that there's a, there was a kind of tradition that people went to crime fiction like they went to crosswords as a kind of, you know, just a relaxation and a kind of coziness. And you knew you'd have a sort of puzzle and uh, something horrible would happen, but you knew it would be, that it would be all settled at the end. But I think in a way both writers and readers have changed in that way and that we, we, we aren't, we don't, we're not going to accept that kind of, of, of view anymore. So we're not going to find consolation and order. In, in, in the stories we read. It re so I think that, you know, we're more, I think we've sort of, in a really interesting way, moved beyond it. And, and they used to, I mean, because they used to, 50 years ago, there were sort of, they all, there were almost codified rules about, you know, you could do this in a crime novel, but not that. You know, and it was limited in a set by genre. And I think now there's a, a real freedom to explore any, if there's any kind of thing that's got under your skin and you're worried about and that's really concerning you in your life, you can as you use your expression, push it a few notches and turn it into a, into a crime thriller and explore it without, without but there, simplifying but there is, it. But there is some consolation. There is consolation because we all have a kind of contract with our readers, don't we? And, the con you know, we're not going to write a novel and the end just not come to an end and not know who did it. That would be, you know... So there's the kind of consolation of... Some kind of solution, Some even answers. if even if you, the consolation isn't happiness. <laughs> I mean, and actually, that's yeah. a big thing yeah. about Frieda. She does not believe in happiness. She believes in autonomy and taking responsibility. And but but crime novels, they have to have they have to reach some kind of understanding and arrival. So there is that. Then there's a great solace in that because life doesn't have very much of that. Yes, life is a kind of perpetual journey, but a crime novel has a kind of ending. Thanks very much, Nikki. Um, I've been told it's now time to open this up to questions from the floor. So we've got a roving mic. If anybody has anything they'd like to ask the panel. And now we can there's see you. <laughs> there's somebody on the second row here. Just, just picking up the question that Jonathan posed. And uh, is, is the consolation, is, is what readers are looking for, catharsis, do you think? Well, I, I agree with what Sean and Nikki were saying about that, that maybe once it was a bit, and that was maybe when these things were neater. I think it's just almost somebody to explore them with you, you know, these questions. And, not, uh, and the, I, I think it's true, you want some degree of resolution, and maybe that is cathartic. But just at least to feel as if you've got a structure and a sort of shape through which to, you know, go through these things. You know, my, the other half of my life as a journalist, I'm aware that we're putting out all this stuff that is just bombarding people with awful things that often don't make any sense. And somehow, you know, in a, in a novel, maybe it's true, 56 years ago, it would have made a very neat kind of sense, as, as Sean was saying, but like a crossword puzzle. Now, instead, it'd probably be much more, you know, looser than that, more grey, more confused, more morally ambiguous, but at least you're not going through it on your own. You've got somebody to go through the, the puzzle with you. Yeah, I feel very strongly there should be a, a sense of emotional resolution at the end of a book, even if you never find out who done it, for instance. Um, I think that that's the journey that I think a reader wants to go on, that they, you, you lay everything out in front of them, you take them on a journey, but at the end, they need to have something to hold on to, some kind of emotional closure, um, whether it's about the plot or about the characters or about themselves. I think to leave a reader unsatisfied would be um, not something I'd ever want to do. Um, and so even though it's all much more fragmented and, and much looser than it used to be, certainly, and much less formalized, I still think that a reader will, will turn away from a writer if they never feel a sense of emotional closure at the end of a book. I, I think also when we think about a term like catharsis, I think that term's very often, and I don't, I don't think you mean it in this way, but I think often we think about that in terms of an awakening, or we understand something that we didn't understand before. But I also think we need to keep in mind that especially in terms of the tragedies, catharsis is a purging of emotion. Your, your, your emotions are tapped into and, and released like the air in a balloon. And, and I think if you get the reader 
to, to, to feel that emotional purging, that depth of emotion, I think you've done your job. My That's aim it. is to make people cry. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Can I, just very, very brief, I, I think in a way every, I, th I think in a way emerge from these answers, every, I think every work has its own kind of contract. So it, it may not be revealing who the killer is, but every, every story has its own appropriate resolution. Yeah. And if you don't provide that, I mean, my own example, this, this is from the crime genre, but I remember watching the series Lost, and there was a certain point where I thought, I suddenly realised they're not going to answer any of these <laughs> questions. They've actually raised these questions. They're not going to answer any of them at all. And, we, and then actually, just, my, my response was, my critical response was to stop watching it because I realised yes. that that was just, it was just being, you were being just led along. You know? yeah. So you yeah. need to, you yeah. need to, in the kinds of que appropriate questions that you've set up need to be answered, I think. Yeah. So that's the kind of catharsis. Another question? Oh, there's lots, yes. Keep going, there's some <laughs> hands up there. Hi, um, I wanted to ask you, um, as we're talking about morality, whether there's ever been a subject that you think is too dark, too grim to ever write about that you just wouldn't touch. Can I just begin by saying that? Because we had this very, we were once talking in an interview to a journalist and we said, the, and this was when we had little children ourselves and we said the one thing that we couldn't write about, we couldn't bring ourselves to write about was the death of a child and as soon as we said those words we knew that that would be the next thing <laughs> that we wrote about <laughs> and indeed it was, but it, but it was very tricky because there are certain subjects I think that can be so disturbing and so emotionally freighted that the, you have to kind of find a way of doing it that doesn't become like a kind of emotional pornography. Mm. So there are some subjects that are just hugely difficult to write about. Um, but I think I cannot think of a subject that should just be called taboo. Yes, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I'd agree with that too, hundred percent. I think I think something that that I try to be aware of, and I would assume that y'all try to be aware of as well, is if something is so dark and you're penetrating such a dark space that that darkness becomes nothing. It, ha it has no emotional resonance because it's not contrasted with anything on the lighter end of the spectrum. There's, if there's no hope in the darkness, then that darkness just becomes kind of the flat line, you know. And so I think that whenever you're writing about a dark subject, if you're falling down the wormhole of despair, then you're falling to nothing. There's nowhere to go. And I think that as a writer, I try to balance those darker moments, not with, you know, slapstick comedy <laughs> necessarily, but, but certainly with the little pinprick of light that maybe you're walking toward when you're walking in that, in that darkness. Yeah. And often the things, that you, the things that you think you can't write about, they may very well be the things that you have to write about. That's the subject that's needing you to write about it. I think when you start a book and you're feeling really frightened about the the story or, or the subject, um, that's a good sign, no, isn't a really it? That's a really, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just an extension to that question, really. Um, morality and abortion and murder. Because, of course, abortion isn't technically murder, is it? Unless the fetus is old enough to be considered a person. So, how far would you go? That's quite interesting. I, I wouldn't equate, um, ever equate uh, abortion with murder. Um, and in fact, the, the taking of life of a young child is not classed as murder, it's infanticide. And there are um, diminished circumstances, diminished charges. I think you'll know about this from legal stuff. Um, I know I explored the sort of, how far would you go, what would you do in my book, The Kindest Thing? where uh, somebody who's terminally ill asks their wife to help them end their life. And she initially doesn't want to do it. And I think it was the subject for me where I was thinking, what on earth would you do in that situation if someone you loved wanted you to do this as a loving act for them to die? What, how on earth would you cope with that? And legally, she did uh, agree to his request and was found out and was charged with murder. That's how the law stands in this country at the time. And as a result of the research I did for that and writing the story, I think it solidified my views 
So I'm now involved in, in uh, dig Dignity in Dying, the campaign to change the law, which is uh, coming up in Parliament later in the year. Can I just make a comment? But the, the subject of abortion is a really interesting one, because if you watch, say if you watch American movies, I don't know why I'm singling out American movies, but I watch a lot of American movies, you know, you come from Mars, you'd think murder was really common and abortion almost never, ever happened. And, uh, <laughs> and, there, is a, and there is a feeling that, the, uh, that one of the most taboo things you could do in the moral, you know, soon, you know, the, you know there's a majority of people in England and America are in favour of abortion, mm. but a character never, in a drama, never just chooses to have an abortion because they won't think it's the best thing to do. And, you know, it's, all, it's always presented as a kind of tragic thing or something to be avoided, even by liberals. And so that's, you know, there's, it, I mean, it's weirdly, it's, it, in a moral area, it's a weirdly taboo subject and people feel very uncomfortable about it, portraying yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, And I was, I was, you know, the very first question you were asking about, about morality and, and we were talking about whether kind of, you know, that thing about you don't write a message in a book yeah. Abortion is one of those subjects that's so kind of politically weighted now that it's quite hard to write about it without taking a political stand on it rather than a kind of yeah. dramatic human stand on it. Mm. Mm. Or for it becoming a kind of shorthand mm. about what you want to say about a character. Yeah, you know, as you, were, as you were saying, Sean, if, you know, if your character has an abortion in the first chapter, then you're setting her up to be an unlikable character. Yeah, and you know, you'd have to then fight yeah. to get back to being her being that, likable, that, that's if that's why what I you want. I was thinking exactly that when you just mentioned it. I think that's why in films you don't see characters yeah. centered, because there would be a fear that you do that. Yeah. Goes back to the likability, unlikability. They've made a moral choice that yeah. at least half your readership, this would be the fear, would not uh, support. And so people perhaps avoid it. I'm thinking about that. you half your readership, but in fact, the yes, statistics are that more than half would, would be support it, abortion. But the assumption and yet, is still, I think, I do believe, probably even in a large proportion of that, more than half of your readers, there would be people who would find that action unlikable. Yeah. So it's a really interesting moral dilemma. I mean, if, you know, mm -hmm. I'm just trying to think of examples where it happened, but, you know, um, many people may forget, uh, you know, Liza Minnelli uh, in Cabaret, Sally Bowles, yes. has an abortion, mm -hmm. and it's not that big a deal. It represents the f the, that they're not going to get married. But she had, you know, the character isn't really judged, is it? And I think you might have trouble getting that through a, uh, through a commercial Hollywood film now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm really sorry. We'd have loved to carry on, but we've got to finish now. Um, can I just tell everyone that we'll all be going down now to the signing tent where you can talk more to the writers and buy copies of the signed books. Um, and thank you very much for coming. Please thank the panel. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.